0: When you think about a practice like minimalism, I would imagine the first name that comes to mind is Marie Kondo. Her Marie method of organizing uh, became mainstream and even reached that pinnacle of of, uh, cultural um, relics of uh, having her own Netflix series, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And her method, if you have not heard of her, was to help people declutter their homes by categories as opposed to location, instead of, you know, going into your dining room and say, let's take care of all this. Instead, it was, hey, let's look at all the books that we have and figure out how we're going to declutter. And the golden piece of wisdom for her was keep only those things that spark, speak to the heart, and discard any item that no longer sparks joy. Now, I'm a little bit of a hoarder. If you ask my wife, I need this kind of, um, this type of uh, encouragement, because I am, we we had a cleanup day here on Friday, and I'm just like, I don't know, should we throw it out, should we not? And we had, you know, Craig and John and others like, if you even have to ask that question, just get rid of it. You haven't used it in the time that we've been here as a church. We don't need it. So Marie Kondo, some of you may have seen, she was in the news recently in the last few weeks, because after the birth of her third child, she uh, shared that she is no longer practicing in the daily habit of of, uh, tidying up but has learned to find peace with the mess of her home. And I just know from, her com- from the comments that I saw, there was this like collective like, uh, like feeling of validation, right? That finally those of us, you know, with, with especially young kids, I mean, it's just difficult in general, but especially with young kids, finding that daily slog to keep a tidy house, we're like, all right, finally, like she gets it. Right? That daily habit of trying to declutter and for it to stay tidy is exhausting. Now, while this was a cultural and is a cultural phenomenon that was recently popular. This topic is something that communities of faith have adopted for centuries, for generations. Right, for centuries the church has taught the spir- spiritual benefits of a discipline called simplicity. So this morning we are continuing this is week 5 of 12 through our series through Richard Foster's book called Celebration of Disciplines. Simplicity, as we look at it this week, is not the same thing as these cultural trends that I referred earlier. It's not the Con-Marie method. Because it's not just about keeping a tidy house or a neat workspace but as with all the disciplines that we have been studying and we will continue to look at, the goal is transformation for your soul. If you follow blogs, and I know a popular one that that my wife had read at times was a blog called Becoming Minimalist. But the focus of these teachings is almost exclusively on these exterior behaviors. It's about forming habits, forming patterns of life. Now, that, that goal is not bad, but I'd suggest that it is inadequate. It's a superficial change of behaviors. Simplicity is an inward reality that reflects and results in an outward lifestyle. Richard Foster argues that you cannot have one without the other. If we focus on just the outward change, without seeing the inward transformation, we're going to begin to navigate down a path of legalism. You know, we can see how this thought process has manifested itself in our lives just beyond the possessions that we desire. We might start to realize that simplicity also might affect the the status that we strive for or the way that we talk to people. An inward simplicity might help us become, yes, more generous people with our things, encouraging us to loosen our fists on our belongings, but it also might mean that we speak more truthfully, more honestly to others. Well, Richard Foster defines simplicity in this way. He says, Simplicity is the reorienting of our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us simplicity involves a heart and lifestyle change that yields joy of stuff, but without that corrupting nature that possessions can have on us. It's about freedom, but this has to begin. Again, I'm gonna, you're going to hear this a number of times this morning. It has to begin with our interior lives. Foster says, and I quote, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. Now, I've got to say, this is a difficult discipline, especially in our modern age. We, we live in this age of advertising. We're constantly comparing ourselves, keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Kardashians, that we are so prone to getting caught up in the winds of society at large because we're told that to be behind in fashion To be behind in technology is grievous to our very identity. So we strive to keep up with whatever appearance we can muster. Arthur Gish puts it this way. He says, we buy things that we do not want to impress people we do not like. The encouragement that comes from Foster is this, that it is time that we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Think about Jesus' teaching in his parable of the dishonest servant. Jesus lists wealth, what he calls mammon, as a rival God to Yahweh. He says it is impossible to serve both masters. So this morning what I'd like us to do is kind of take a dive into cultivating, you know, this attitude of gratitude in us. How can we learn to practice this freedom that comes from Simplicity. So I have kind of three vignettes, if you will, that I want to move through. First, I want to give just a little bit of scripture background to what the Bible says about the topic. Then we're going to focus on the inward practice of simplicity, which has to be first in our lives. And then we'll conclude with some examples, some recommendations of outward behaviors, some places to start, if you will. So the Bible does talk a lot about wealth. It talks a lot about possessions. And not It it talks in ways in which we don't understand that we kind of take for things that we take for granted that the Bible actually speaks contrary to. For example, in American democracy, we believe in the right for individuals to hold private property. That is a kind of a benchmark of our Constitution. But this is actually something I would argue the Bible takes some issue with. The Bible would say there is no absolute right to private property, that the world is God's alone. Leviticus 25, 23 puts it this way. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, right? You cannot sell a piece of land and then whoever has it holds it forever. It continues, for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Kind of changes our perspective if we see ourselves as strangers or foreigners in the land, that it's actually God's. So something we take for granted in our constitution is not supported biblically, right? Beyond just as citizens of our nation, as followers of Jesus Christ, this should shape the ways that we live, how we view the things that we own. Another passage that is closer to the realm of simplicity is the 10th commandment. Both, you have kind of two lists of these 10 commandments. One is Exodus 20, one is Deuteronomy 5, and we're told not to covet anything that our neighbor has, kind of like envy. This pushes back against this natural feeling that we struggle with, this inner lust to have positively speaking, it's saying I should be content with what God has given me and not feel drawn to go after my neighbor's goods. Let's point to Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. Jesus, uh, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this story. He encounters a wealthy individual who is looking to enter into God's kingdom, right? How do, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus' response to him at the end is, give everything you have and Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Verse 22 tells us that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possession. Now, in an affluent society, we should think very carefully about how we interpret this passage. Right? Was it meant to be a universal command for everyone or was it more contextualized, specific to this individual, this one person who clearly had this, this uh, um, you know, attachment to his things? You know, and before we dismiss it, I'm not going to answer that question for you right now, by the re- for the record, but before we dismiss it applying to us, remember, Jesus spoke more in the Gospels about the dangers of wealth than any other social issue. In fact, the only thing he spoke more about is just the kingdom in general. Next to the kingdom, it was money. It was wealth. So this is a lifestyle we ought to be very, very careful with. But in light of all this, God doesn't go to the other extreme and mandate asceticism. Asceticism is a a, a philosophy, it's a discipline that is about avoiding any form of indulgence. God warns about the dangers of wealth, but he does not expect all of us to take vows of poverty. The Lord wants us to have enough material provision, right? Not living in squalor. Here's a, a, a chart that has helped me in the past kind of think through this, right? see what this balance looks like. I believe that in the Bible, what we see is that God wants us to have enough, to have our needs met so that we are not in a place of suffering. doesn't mean that there is no suffering in life. That's not what I'm saying. But suffering as the result of financial insecurity is not a good thing in the economy of God's kingdom. So our needs should be met so that we have enough. But we don't want to go too far where every want, and that's a, this is an important thing to think about as you think about the things, right? We, we might say, I need this, but do you really need it or do you want it? Learning to, to identify the difference between those two. But if we start to find that all of our wants are met, if everything that we ever wanted is satiated, we start to, we're probably living more in excess, which is not where, we, where the Bible would say we ought to have. So there's no formula But I think thinking about a chart like this can be a quick test to show us where we are. All right, let's move. That's just a little bit of biblical background in this. Let's move to what Foster has to say about the inward discipline of simplicity. So a few moments ago, I just shared about this ascetic way of life, avoiding anything that resembles indulgence, living in poverty. Now, this is not simplicity. Foster suggests that these two Uh, philosophies, these two ways of living are mutually exclusive because asceticism is about the renunciation of possessions, jettisoning everything of value. Simplicity sets them in their proper perspectives. In the words of Foster, he says, simplicity sets us free to receive the provision of God as a gift that is not ours to keep and can be freely shared with others simplicity is not about whether or not we are allowed to have stuff but do those possessions occupy the appropriate space in our souls now as we think about simplicity right as we uh, i shared at the very first week that foster breaks his disciplines into three sections three groups of four the inward disciplines which we finished last week with study the outward disciplines, and the corporate. So simplicity is listed as an outward discipline. And the reason is, even though so much of it is done inwardly, but the reason is because simplicity, the way we live out simplicity is uh, uh, visible to others, right? What we wear, what type of car we drive, right? How many Funko Pop figurines we might own. It's easy for us to wear simplicity like a coat, like an outer garment, measuring our lifestyle by these external metrics. And before we know it, we've slipped into legalism. Right? Just going through the motions can cause us to err in two ways. That if we just are trying to live this simple way of life, we can either go into to legalism, that we need to live simply in order to earn God's love. That's an error. We have God's love not because of how we live but because of what Christ has done for us. Or worse, I would argue, simplicity becomes a badge of holiness. God loves me more because I drive a Kia and I haven't splurged for that BMW. The externals are important, which we'll get to, but I want to just drive home yet again that if you hear nothing else today, that the discipline of simplicity must begin inwardly with your heart. Here's the primary trait of simplicity. That we seek the kingdom of God first. That's it. In order for us to feel like we have enough or to experience the truth that we are enough, we must ask, do I believe that God is enough? Are you living for God's kingdom or are you living for God's kingdom and something else added onto it? like a new house or a promotion at work. We've got to focus our vision in alignment with God and his kingdom and experience satisfaction there before we can build this rhythm of simplicity outwardly. If you don't seek the kingdom of God first, you don't seek it at all. In Matthew 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached on these themes. He actually closes with the, the passage, I think it's verse 33, where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. But before that, what he says is he encouraged us not to be anxious about what we would wear, about what we would eat. He said, look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field. God is providing for them and if he cares for them, he's gonna provide for you as well. Freedom from this anxiety is one of the inward evidences of growth and transformation of simplicity note, I didn't say freedom from anxiety. I'm not saying that anxiety just all goes away, but freedom of anxiety that revolves around possessions. In Foster's words, he says, quote, The inward reality of simplicity involves a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. Neither the greedy nor the miserly know this liberty. Right? Simplicity is ultimately about living It's not ultimately, excuse me, about living in abundance or lack, but contentment with what God has provided. This is exactly what Paul means when he says in Philippians 4.13, right, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That passage does not mean, right, that Tim Tebow, I used to kind of rip Tim Tebow because he used to put it on his eye black when he played football. It doesn't mean that he can play football. That's not what that passage means. It's not about hiking a mountain or running a marathon. The passage is fundamentally about contentment in all different types of circumstances. Just living without stuff is not the same thing as simplicity. So according to Foster, when this, this kind of presence of simplicity settles in our heart and in our lives, three natural things happen. First, what we receive, we receive as a gift from God. Second, that which we do have, we believe to be cared for God, cared for by God, by God, excuse me. And lastly, those goods that we possess are available to others. This is the inward attitude of simplicity. Let me say them again. First, that everything we receive, we acknowledge is a gift from God. Second, that what we have is cared for by God. And lastly, that these goods are available and shared with others. Now, i got to tell you, friends, this is something that I fail at daily, quite possibly on all of these counts. Let me share my guess as to what is more typical in our experience with those three. So, contrary to the first principle, I don't receive everything as gifts from God, but I make assumptions that it's mine because I earned it. You know, have you ever seen Lord of the Rings film. I feel like every month, at least once a month, I've got to have a Lord of the Rings reference. Right? You've got Gollum, who, sorry if you haven't seen it, but it, it's, he, he's, he's got this ring that he kind of found by happenstance, and it corrupts him, and, and he, he, you know, he says, it's mine, my own, my precious, right? It's, it's his. It doesn't matter that it was just dumb luck that he found it, or it, it wasn't dumb luck, because Tolkien has a very kind of higher power uh, framework, worldview that he has in there. But the truth is when we go, we probably there's something you can think of that you've gone down this path where you've said, I earned it, it's mine. It's really important when we have that for us to repent of it, to turn away from it and return to God. Right? When God was preparing the Hebrew people to go into the promised land, this is in the book of Deuteronomy, so they're about to conquer it. Really, by no uh, effort of their own, Yeah, they, they fought the battles, but they acknowledged that God was the one that was going before them fighting those battles. But he says this in Deuteronomy 8, 17. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. God's reminder was, you were given this as a gift. Make sure you recognize this. Whether we would care to acknowledge it or not, we're all dependent on God, even in our work where we earn a living. Even that is a gift of God. It's not ultimately our own doing on the second point we often fail instead of trusting god to care for what we possess we believe that we've got to be the ones to protect it now i'm not talking about taking common sense precautions right lock your home lock your vehicles right it's you know i live here right here on mcclure avenue and it's very common that if you leave your car unlocked that there will be someone adults or kids rifling through your stuff so right i'm not talking about normal precautions but when we act out of our anxiety, we ignore the provision of God and assume that we are the only guardians of what we own. So, I got, a, I got an example. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this or not. So I've been very, if this kind of like rocks you a little bit, you're like all kinds of questions now, come talk to me afterwards. But we, so I've been very transparent with many of you that for the last several years there has been a lien on this property for a loan that is not our responsibility. I'm not going to get into the history of it. Uh, but there was a point in time, about a year and a half ago, um, over the last year and a half, where it was like D-Day, you know, that the, the, um, the line of credit was like due in full. And, you know, the loan's not in our name. It's not our loan, but we are the mortgager as a church. Again, that's kind of backwards how that all happened. Uh, and, and, and so it was like, is this going to get paid off or not? Well, it got refinanced, which was good, which kind of let it go. But there was this point in time where I was talking to my wife about this, thinking, if this loan defaults, like, we lose everything. Like, all of the, the finances, you know, that we, all our equity that we have in the bank. It's not just the building. And so I, you know, go down my... I'm a a guardian in my uh, ESFJ, uh, Myers-Briggs, and so my thought process is, what do I need to do to make sure this place sees it, right? Instead of trusting God to provide, I was putting it on myself. And so I said to my wife, I said, well, what if, we didn't do this just for the record, but I was like, what if I kind of like take some cash in hand, so it's not in our bank accounts, and put it in our safety deposit box, right? several thousand dollars so that if something, if the worst were to happen, we have seed money that we can kind of continue as a church. My wife was like, do you hear yourself right now, right? Like you're talking, I mean, it's not fraud, it's not embezzlement, but you're talking about like taking cash and putting it in our safety deposit box like you're the mob or something, you know? And, and, and it was like, it was a light bulb for me that I was able to say, you know what, God, this is an opportunity for, for us to go as a church go all in for you. The, for the last year and a half, Every payment has been made, as far as I know. We're, so we've got eight and a half years left. Um, it's been made. Do I trust God to take care of us or do I feel? I think that just was a perfect example in my life where it's like I've got to be the one in control of the reins. This is something that's outside of my, hand, my hands. So anyway, I hope that's a little bit of an aside. I hope that makes sense as, as an example of what it might look like to have this anxiety where you feel like I've got to be the arbiter of this. Now, lastly, contrary to the freedom of simplicity, the final way we're prone to live is by hoarding our stuff for ourselves. Right? It's so easy to tightly grip our possessions and prevent them from being ac- accessible to others. And this dysfunction often stems from a disconnect in item number one, where we think that we're the only ones solely responsible for attaining it. All right? If it's all mine then I'm not under any obligation or requirement to share it with others. But if we view that all that we have is actually a gift of God, if it's all by grace that we've received it, then it's not fully ours to determine how to use it. I know in my life there's anxiety about fear for tomorrow, like what if I open my home or I lend something out and it gets broken? What if I share my resources and there aren't enough left for my family? Those are honest. Those are valid questions. But when we see the vast generosity of God, it should help us reorient our lives, right? Reorient our focus to loosen that grip of our stuff. Do do you ever read through a a, a book and read a quote and you're just kind of like, oof, like you just feel like you got sucker punched by it? Listen to what Richard Foster says regarding this. He says, If our goods are not available to the community... When it is clearly right and good, then they are stolen goods. And that one, man, when I read that, that brought the prick of conviction to me. If we don't share our possessions when it is the right thing to do, we might as well consider those things stolen. So to recap how we got here, we've got to first seek God's kingdom. We receive What we possess as a gift, trusting God to care for them, and being a people that are generous with others—that is the inward attitude of simplicity. And when we find that we're not aligning with that, we ought to go to repentance. We ought to go to God in prayer and say, "God, I, I need you to change. I need you to heal my heart because that's not my natural inclination." This is where we need to begin our journey, and from there we'll move to the outward expressions of simplicity if we see those if we seek to have those external behaviors without that inward change then as i said earlier we are on that precipice of legalism but i'd say conversely if that inner reality is true of us and there is not outward expression then i would say that the it reveals that that inward reality is probably not that true If we're experiencing this inner transformation, this is going to affect the way that we live. So to begin to wrap up, I want to give you some concrete pictures of what external simplicity can look like. And they all come right out of of Foster's book, um, his chapter on simplicity, and they're not exhaustive. The goal of them is meant to be a starting point. You know that phrase, to prime the pump, to get you thinking about this so that you can dream, you can explore what this discipline might look like in your own life. And so there's 10 suggestions. And here's what I'd encourage you to do. If one or two of them kind of piques your interest, and we've got notepads with our old logo, but still notepads in the pews, you know, feel free to jot them down uh, and, and take them with you so that you can kind of can find ways to put them in practice over the next coming weeks. So here you go. One, buy things for usefulness, their usefulness, instead of status. Right? Buy things because of their usefulness instead of what they communicate to others. For example, there is a trend right now. Uh, we're moving more and more towards electric vehicles. So let's just say you're in the market for an electric car. Right? What's the difference between buying an electric Toyota versus a Tesla? Oof, everybody wants a Tesla. They're, they're, they look real nice. Right? Are you pa- willing to pay more just because it's like a trendy brand? and others might think better of you because you've got a Tesla. You could consider this with your clothing. John Mark Comer, phenomenal book. It's a real easy read called uh, his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which, man, I know I need to read that like annually, probably weekly, but that's a whole other thing. But he describes in this book how he downsized his wardrobe. He said he went through his closet and he only kept six outfits per season. And then after a year of doing this, he's like, I don't need six outfits. He downsized to three outfits per season. Now, people are far less concerned about what you wear than what they think. People are far less concerned about what you wear than what you think they are. Right? I've shared this before. Uh, I know we have some, some new folks here this morning, but my wife did a social experiment a number of years ago where she wore the exact same outfit every day in a week. And it took me, maybe this says, says something about me, but it took me her husband, who sees her every day about six days before I realized that she'd been wearing the same thing. So just to put that out there, people probably don't even notice some of that stuff. So buy things for their usefulness, not just what they communicate to others. Two is this, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. This could be in the realm of food. Maybe you have a tendency to overconsume alcohol, or rely too much on caffeine, right? You can't start the day without that cup of coffee. One of the silent addictions that we usually don't think about is added sugars. I've shared this before, there's a a really good book called The Hacking of the American Mind, which describes the food industries and their desire to put added sugar, right? Because it tantalizes your taste buds and it produces dopamine in your brain, and so you desire more and more and more of it. Maybe you need to reject television, video games, collectibles, like comic books. Right? Simplicity is not just about having less stuff, but it's about a lifestyle of freedom. Freedom means that you should not be beholden to something else. That's two, reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. Three, develop the habit of giving things away. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. You, you, you gotta like loosen your grip if you're willing to give stuff away. Foster describes a Christmas where, instead of buying new gifts for his family and friends, he found items that he treasured, that he loved, and he gave them as gifts of love to others. We'll keep going. Four, reject the allure of modern gadgetry. It's kind of an antiquated word, but in other words, reject the need to have all the newest technology. You do not need to have a new iPhone every two years. I know the phone carriers make you think that you do, but you don't. Just because, in fact, Austin is still using an iPhone 7 right now. Uh, So there you go. I don't know how many years that would be. Just because something promises to save you time, promises to make life easier, does not mean that it will deliver on those promises. All right. Uh, five, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Places like Pittsburgh, we've got plenty of public spaces, we've got parks, we've got libraries. Right? You can become a patron of the toy lending library in Shadyside. Just as an example, I, I really wanted to read this um, fiction series called The Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson, and our local library didn't have it, so I bought them. I bought all four of them so that after I read it, I could donate it to the library so that others could have access to really good fantasy literature. All right, six, develop a deeper appreciation for creation. I'm not going to say more about this. I talked uh, pretty extensively about creation in both the messages on meditation and study. So we're going to keep going. Sorry if you're writing and I didn't give you enough time. Seven, look with healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. Credit card companies are not your friend. Let me say that again. Credit card companies do not have your best interest in mind. The Bible has a lot to say about the lending of money, especially charging interest to it, what they call usury. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Spoiler alert, God is not real favorable towards it. Now, there are times in our society that we may need to use credit to purchase a home or a vehicle, but outside of those purchases that kind of help you build equity, don't use credit cards. Their interest rates are so high, I would classify them as predatory, personally. Now, I I will put a little asterisk on that comment, right, because I don't want to come across as a hypocrite whenever I talk in another sermon about using a credit card. Our family does use a credit card for a lot of purchases, grocery, gasoline, things like that. But the goal, the reason we use it is it's a 529 card, so it gives us points to add to our kids' education funds, and we pay the balance each month, right? We're using money that we have in our bank account. It's not truly credit. And so we're not, att- we're not having to pay out any of that interest. So again, just, just want to make it full transparency. I do use a credit card, even though I just said don't use a credit card. But I think you get the heart of what I was trying to say in that. All right, eighth is this. Obey Jesus' instructions about plain, honest speech. Now, I know this one might seem a little bit of place on a talk about simplicity, because we often think of simplicity as it pertains to possessions. But simplicity often has to do with how we believe others view us. We saw that with the purchasing things for usefulness instead of status. It motivates our spending habits, but I think it can also motivate our speech patterns. Jesus said in Matthew five thirty-seven, "'Let what you say be simply yes or no. "'Anything more than this comes from evil.'" He says, when we swear on our mother's grave or across your heart and hope to die or any variation that is meant to strengthen your influence of your words, we have moved outside of the realm of simplicity. Remember, simplicity is about freedom. And that means that we are freed from justifying ourselves before others. Speech included. All right, nine. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. Be a conscientious consumer. Now, the truth is there is so much oppression in our world that it's next to impossible to obtain anything that doesn't have a little bit of blood on it. But you can do your research. You can try to make informed decisions to cause at least the least amount of harm that you can. There are more than 27 million slaves in the world today. And that number is as high as it is because there are profit-making ventures that enable that behavior. So let's try to do our best not to contribute to it. In fact, I was just this morning listening to a Holy Post interview that um did with Shane Claiborne. And even just the first, I only got about half an hour halfway through it, but even in the first 15, 20 minutes, they're talking about what does it mean for us as believers to can we fly on Boeing airplanes because they're the largest military manufacturer for the U.S. government? Can we have a MacBook? Because, man, their crimes against humanity, Apple's crimes against humanity in in developing nations is is long list. So thinking about those types of things. Tenth, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. I'd say enough said. Shun anything that keeps you from, because that's number one, right? That's the interior thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, all of these examples, they're not going to happen overnight. Some of them are going to be much harder for you to do than others. But the goal of the spiritual disciplines is to strengthen our souls so that we might be more faithful, more grounded people of God. Remember, simplicity is about reorienting our lives. I'll put that definition back up. Reorienting our lives around our possessions so that they can be enjoyed without destroying us. It's about freedom from anxiety, freedom from the enslavement of stuff, so that we might enjoy the good things of God's kingdom, and that we might be liberal and generous of them with others. So as I do each week, I've got some questions I'll post on Facebook and and our website uh, tomorrow. Some things to think about so you can have these touch points in the week. Of these three inward attitudes, which is the most descriptive of you? So that's kind of the negative ones, right? I earned it. I must protect it. I don't got to share it, right? Which of those is the one that you would say you struggle with most and maybe why? Pick one or two things from that list of 10 examples and think of ways you can change your rhythms to put them into practice. And lastly, meditate on Matthew six twenty-five to 34. That's the, you know, maybe maybe listen to Maverick City Music's, you know, gyro behind it because it's, similar themes in there. Uh, but that's where Jesus talks about, right? Don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear. Look at the birds and the lilies. Um, what, like, do you actually believe these words? Do you believe that God has taken care of you? And what can you, what can help you lean more into those truths? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for this time and, and uh, just everyone's attentiveness, even as we've gone over a little bit, uh, Lord, because you are the God who brings freedom, and you have created a world that is good and a a way that we can, uh, you've created to be enjoyed, to be celebrated, Lord, that as we aren't just called to fast from food, but we're also called to feast on good things. And so, God, as we think about the role of possessions, the, the role of simplicity in our lives, may we not be beholden to these things, but find ways to to recognize that you are enough in our lives. And because you are enough, we can know that we have enough and that we are enough as well. Cultivate this in our hearts that we might be a people that leads leads counterculturally our peers in ways that are able to be healing and healthy for society and a blessing to others. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.